right, so we're in numbers. <clears throat> Who wants to tell me something we know about numbers? Just anything. Somebody say something about numbers that we may want to know. It's about the number of people. It's, it's named after the number of people, right? Be sure your son will find you out if you fail to cross over and help your brother. That's right. Absolutely. In fact, what did we say was a major theme here? Un- unbelief, right? We've seen that up until this point. We've seen it kind of break down into obedience and then disobedience. Where are they right now? Where are the people? Where are the people of God? Where location geographically are they right now? In the book of Numbers, in that context. Remember, I'll give you a hint. It's not Sinai, and it's not the Promised Land. It's the wilderness. In fact, they are actually at this point they're kind of able to see the land that God has promised to them, haven't they? They're able to see that which God has promised. And so, what do they do when they see the land that God has promised? Who do they send out? Spies. spies, right? And the, the, they sent the spies out really um, to get their opinion on whether or not they should obey God, right? Yeah. No, not really. They sent the spies out just to gather facts, right? Really, tell us a little bit about what you see in the land. And how many spies came back with a good report? Two. Two. Who were they? Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. And how many spies came back with a, let's not do this? Ten. Ten spies came back uh, with a let's not do this. I think that's exactly what they said, right? Something to that, that point. Um, and, and what happened when Moses responded and reminded them of God's word? Do you remember? Mutiny. Yeah. yeah. What did they say? You remember what they said? They said, we want to go where? Back to Egypt. Take us back to Egypt, that place that God just demolished. They'll probably receive us very well. We had... Food and such there, right? They uh, do nothing. In fact, what do they want to do to Moses? They wanted to stop him. They wanted to kill the guy. Guys, just think about this. Who had brought him out of slavery for 400 years. They had watched him perform marvelous works. That God worked through Moses. They, they saw how he went up in the mountain. They've already messed up several times with the golden calf at Mount Sinai. They've seen God's mercy. And yet, you know what? We can't really say anything better because you know what? We, we have this full testimony and we're still quick to unbelieve, <laughs> right? We, we're still prone to disbelief often. And so uh, there's a wonderful thing that happens here. Um, even though there's a lack of faith, God will show mercy. And this is where we start. Okay, I'm going to try and find this on your sheet here. You guys, I believe we're on page three of your notes. Right, We left off at the end, or actually kind of the middle of, I believe, chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. I think that's where we got it, right? So we got Yahweh with kindled wrath, protects Moses, and pronounces his sentence against the people. And so we see this tremendous tragedy, and yet we'll see the glimmer of hope here that starts. So go ahead, if you have your Bibles, and turn with me to Numbers chapter 14. You've already done that. Good for you. Numbers chapter 14. So even though there's this tremendous tragedy, they've had no faith, they're looking to destroy the very one that's delivered them. Think about that. There's still hope. Because Yahweh is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion. So this instant is going to be another opportunity for us to see 
the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in how do we see that in the Old Testament? Do we see the name Jesus Christ mentioned here? You remember that phrase, that word we talk about that prefigures and shadows Christ in the Old Testament? What is it? Typology. That's right, exactly. Here we're going to see Moses as a type. Look at Numbers 14, 13 through 19, and let's read this. Moses once again prefigures and foreshadows Christ by making a prayer of intercession. Intercession, that's the fill in the blank, if there is one there. On behalf of the people, there is. Starting in verse 13. And Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear it, for by your might you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands above them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard of your fame will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. And now, I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. I I love that, by the way. When you see in verse 18, anytime you see this phrase, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means clearing the guilty, uh, allowing them to go unpunished. Um, Anytime you see that, circle. Because that is what we call the great dilemma of the Bible, right? How can a good God be forgiving, holy, just, merciful, kind, gracious, slow to anger, and also not leave the, the or not allow the guilty or, or allow the guilty to go unpunished? How does that happen? If this was a judge in a regular day to day setting, we would say that's not a very good judge, right? You think that judges that say, you know what? I'm a good judge, I'm nice, I, I'm, I'm, I'm perfect and when it comes with the idea of keeping the law, I do my job well, but I'm going to allow these prisoners to go free without punishment. Would they be a good judge? No. And so when you see that phrase, always mark it down, because the answer to how Jesus, or how God, can be perfectly holy, perfectly pure, and also by no means leave the guilty unpunished, also being slow to mercy and forgiveness, it's because of Jesus. But really, in this big passage, what I want you to notice is Moses' appeal to Yahweh's glory and fame. Did you notice that? Remember why Yahweh rescued them from Egypt in the first place? They go all the way back to Exodus. It was for His glory and His own name's sake. So when we read Moses' prayer on behalf of the people, we think, that's a smart guy, Moses. That's what you need to appeal to the Lord in that way, because he's basically saying... Oh, Yahweh, listen, we've seen your power in dealing with the Egyptians. Now, please, let us see how powerful your grace and compassion are. In so doing, uphold your glory and fame. And so, just as we saw with the golden calf, this turns out to be an effectual prayer. Yahweh will not cast off his people entirely. Nevertheless, though, there will be real consequences for the people's rebellion. 
I had this question last week. This is always an interesting thing, isn't it? When we see God seemingly change his mind, right? We think, well, I know that God doesn't change. What's happening here? Did, did, did Moses just out-talk God into doing something he didn't want to do? All right. No, of course not. Think about it. This is why biblical theology is so important, right? What is God's purpose in allowing us to see this conversation between he and Moses? Remember Genesis 3.15. Remember the story of the Bible. What are we looking for? We're looking for the Messiah, right? We're looking for someone who's going to come and crush the serpent's head. And what Moses is doing here is he's prefiguring Christ. God is allowing this to happen so we would see that what we need is an intercessor. Someone to come and bear the wrath of God for our behalf. And yet Moses, though he is a picture of Christ in this way, is not qualified to be the Christ. And so there's going to be real consequences for the people's rebellion. That's what we find in verses 20 through 23. Someone want to read that for me? Numbers 14, 20 through 23. So the Lord said, I pardon them according to thy word, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. But because my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him to the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Yeah, so I'm going to skip down to verse 30 and 32 where it says, Except for Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. Okay, so what's, what's, the, what's the consequence for their rebellion? What is it? They weren't able to enter the promise. Who? The children of Israel who didn't want to go in. Right, so an entire generation of people, Right. Entire generation of people is not allowed to enter the promised land, and this is this is really intriguing to me, right? Because the, really, what's happening is the taking of the land is delayed here. It's a real sad note in the history of Israel. But the point that should be emphasized is that Yahweh is still moving forward with His plan of redemption, and He's still fulfilling His promises, isn't He? They're delayed a little, but that's just fine with Yahweh. You, you know that Yahweh doesn't necessarily owe the next generation any more faithfulness. Did you know that? And yet he still gives it because he's able perfectly to have consequences for unbelief like he does to that generation. This generation will die in the wilderness. They'll never see the land. But still hold fast to his promises and they're strong. Even the people's sin cannot stop Yahweh from his plan of redemption and showing himself as a covenant faithful God. Now we have to ask, what difference does it make to us that the people did not reach the promised land because of their unbelief? What does that matter? Well, remember what the promised land represented, right? It represented heaven. It represented the newly created universe. And we refer to it as the new heavens and the new earth, right? That's the simplest terms. Heaven, the world to come. And so this generation and their actions... And the consequences of their actions serve as a major theological launching point for the author of Hebrews. 
In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 3 with me real quick. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 12 through 13 for time's sake while you're turning there, but still turn there. Hebrews 12 through 13 says this. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. It's really important to point out in this verse, there's a very sober warning here. The book of Hebrews is telling us that we can be exposed to a whole lot of power, grace, a whole lot of doctrinal teaching from the Lord, and still fall away because we lack faith. There's the warning. Think about this. This is true. You can come to your discipleship class every Wednesday night. You can come to church for decades. You can know the Bible inside and out. You can be a leader in the church even. You can be part of a Sunday school class, outreach ministries, mission trips, so on, so on, and still miss heaven because it was all never mixed with faith. You never believed. So I would say faith is important. A lot more could be said here, of course, but I encourage you to think about this passage. Think it over and examine your hearts. The key application for Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 is that you must have faith and you must persevere until the end in faith. Don't let sin and unbelief deceive you and lead you to make a shipwreck of your faith. In other words, don't play with fire. You're not in heaven yet. Persevere in faith. And I think this is very important because a lot of times when we talk to people about their faith and whether or not they have faith, what we do is we always point back to an event in the past, right? But, but listen, that's why the Bible is filled with encouragements for you to endure in the faith. Because it's, it's as important, it is important that you've had a time where you've given your heart and life to Christ, but it's equally important that today you are trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That you are resting in His work. In fact, look at what it says at verse 13 uh, again. We're warned in verse 12 to beware lest we have an unbelieving heart. That takes a continual checking of our own heart so that we're not led astray. But our faith must last us our entire lives. But Look at what it says in Hebrews 3.13. One of my favorite verses in all of the scriptures. One I've had memorized for a while. Somebody go ahead and read it for us. 3.13 of Hebrews. But encourage one another day after day, as long as they're still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Okay, think about this. He says, encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today. Why? So that you will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So listen, the work of perseverance, the work of enduring in the faith, continuing the faith, it is not something that is to be done in isolation and solitude. It's not. We actually need to rely on others. And others need to rely on us so that we can run this race and not come up short because sin deceived us and led us astray. Hear me, eternal security, it's a community project. Uh, we are exhorted to encourage one another unless sin's deceitfulness harden our hearts and give room for such unbelief. So we need to trust one another, open our lives up to one another so we can watch out for one another in a loving way saying, don't let lust deceive you. Don't let 
greed deceive you. Don't let envy deceive you. Don't let murmuring or grumbling deceive you. Don't let hatred deceive you. Don't let the hedonistic treasure of America deceive you. We need to be a community where we daily encouraging each other to have faith that sees through the deceptions of the world firm to the end. So let me ask you a point of application. Do you have somebody in your life that really can come up to you and lovingly point out the sin in your life without you immediately thinking about how you never want to talk to that person again and that relationship is destroyed? Because this is something that is missing, particularly in our modern culture. We barely know how to have phone conversations with one another. There's like a real phone anxiety thing that's happening in my generation. Did you know that? Really, like we're afraid to even just talk on the phone with people. I can only imagine that means we're probably not really good at face-to-face conversations. And yet, listen, this community is actually supposed to encourage one another in the sense of not sinning. Like encourage one another out of sin. When is the last time, let me ask you, the last time someone approached you and said, I love you, I want you to know, I see this in your life, and I want to encourage you to pursue Jesus in the midst of that. Or when's the last time you went to a brother or sister and saw sin in their life and said, I I want you to know, I've noticed this, I'm saying this because I love you, but I want to encourage you. Do not let the deceitfulness of sin harden your heart, and I've noticed this in your life. Listen, this is vital. You wonder why we struggle with doubts about our salvation? Wonder why we constantly wrestle whether or not we belong to the Lord? Could it be this because we're not really living in community with one another? If we don't have anybody in our lives, and I'm not even talking, listen, your spouse is not really the one that's supposed to do that. You know that? They can. But you need other people in your life that approach you about your sin. And if you don't have that, we need to continue to foster these type of relationships in the church. We have to. You you know what's at stake here. The perseverance of our faith, the encouragement to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin is at risk. And so I wanted to encourage you with that. As Johnny says, that was free. It won't cost you any extra. It wasn't in your notes. All right. Let's move on to Numbers 21, the next section from verses 4 through 9. These chapters right in the middle of the book, they're, they're full of more examples of disbelief and disobedience. Justin covered all the obedience last week. I get to cover all the disobedience this week. Uh, fun stuff. Uh, so they're full. Because they're full of disobedience and disbelief, they're also full of Yahweh's long-suffering and His grace. Let's look at just another example of this. Uh, turn to chapter 21. While you do, I'm going to go ahead and read John three fourteen through 15, where Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. What in the world does that mean? Who knows the story already? You're familiar with what takes place in number 21. Good, all right. Uh, The answer is in Numbers 21. Somebody go ahead and read uh, verses 4 through 5, if you will. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. 
pray to the Lord that he may take away the, the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent, uh, serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Good. What did you read to? Nine. Nine? Good. All right, I want you to know this, this pattern that, that continues to happen here, okay? Because this is very important. Um, we start with the people's sin in verse 6. What was their sin, by the way? Grumbling. Grumbling, right? Or primarily, they're grumbling here. In fact, let me do this. Listen. All right, so we start with their sin, and it's grumbling. This is the first time they've ever grumbled, isn't it? No. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, it won't be the last either, will it? Um, okay, what happens next? In verse 6, we see a picture of God's wrath, don't we? What? How is God's wrath shown? Fire serpent. Boy, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? Man, we're afraid of discipline if we get stuck in traffic after we've been impatient at some point in time. The discipline here is, let me send fiery serpents to come and bite the people. That's that's pretty... All right, so we see God's wrath displayed pretty clearly in verse 6. I'm sorry, his, uh, yeah, his wrath displayed in verse 6. But then look at verse 7. What do we see? Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned. That's good, right? We, listen, we've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord take away the serpents from us. That's repentance, isn't it? That's, that's what they do. They repent in verse 7, although they'll still fall into sin. And then the people repent, and what do they do in verse 8 and 9? They seek an intercessor, a mediator, someone to go to the Lord to plead for mercy on their behalf. Does that pattern look familiar to you? Mm-hmm. You see that in the gospel? <laughs> you should. Absolutely. Sin, wrath, repentance, need for a mediator. That's exactly what happens. What was Jesus talking about when he said he had to be lifted up like a snake so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life? Again, what do we have another example of here? What's it called? I'm going to keep hammering it down. What is this? Typology. Typology. We have an example of typology, and then in the New Testament, John 3, fulfillment. That's where an event in the Old Testament, remember, it's intended under God's sovereignty to foreshadow and prefigure a greater reality in Christ. In this case, the snake on the pole saved people from physical death by venom. This is clear, isn't it? Christ brings a greater salvation. He doesn't save from snakes, as bad as that is. But he saves from hell and eternal damnation. Not only that, he he doesn't only save from physical death, does he? But he saves from eternal death. Now this brings up another question. How in the world can looking at a snake on a pole ever cure someone of a snake bite? And what in the world is the relationship between that and Jesus on the cross? It really is, Miss Faith. Uh, the answer is, is clear. Right? Because clearly what's going on in Numbers 21, it's a miracle, isn't it? Yeah. It is. Yahweh is supernaturally healing these people. But look at the grounds upon which he does it. It's the looking. Looking at the snake is the act of faith and obedience. The act of obedience that really comes from faith in what God has provided. That's to say... If God has given this snake as the means to the cure, then merely just by looking at it, as they're told, 
is an act of trusting in God's provision for the healing and forgiveness of their sins. In the same way, we're called to trust the provision of salvation in Christ. Listen, the cross of Jesus Christ, whose idea was that? God's idea, wasn't it? It was God's design. It was given to us as the one and only way to be saved from our sins, from our murmuring, disbelief, distrusting, and disobeying that we are all guilty of all time as well. If you seek some other means of salvation, it won't work. Only belief in what God has provided, His Son dying for your sins, will suffice to rescue you from hell. And that way, Christ is a great Savior, the way of salvation that God has provided from all who, for all who would believe. Okay, we're going to... There's a bug around here. I'm not getting Pentecostal on you. Just, you know, um, all right. Uh, we're going to look at a big chunk now from chapters 26 to 36, okay? Really just quickly, and then I want to I dive into one question we actually had in our Sunday school class and, and get some confusion here um, for you. So 26 through 36, the following chapters and numbers, again, have the disappointing stories of Israel's rebellion and idolatry in the wilderness. In chapter 26, Bob, you got it? Where is it? Where's your census thing? All right, another census is taken, and in order to demonstrate that, Bob's going to take all of us down for the census, right? Okay, all right, um, I'm kidding, that's not happening. Uh, all right, uh, another census is taken, and for that first generation, you know what they've done? They've died, just as the Lord said. Things then begin to look up again for the rest of the book. The new generation is preparing to go into the land, and by the end of the book, the nation of Israel is encamped on the plains of Moab just across the Jordan River from the Promised Land. Once again, the promises of God are poised to be fulfilled. We'll see if this generation has more faith and more trust in the Lord than their forefathers did. All right, before we close the book of Numbers, I want to go back and pick up one more doctor in chapter 11, all the way back in chapter 11. We had this question this week in Sunday school. What's the difference, really it's, it's a little bit different, yes, but this is, this is pretty much the gist of it. What's the difference between what the Holy Spirit did in the Old Testament days and what he's doing now? Uh, it's clear that, that we certainly read a lot more of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, don't we? But we know he was active in the Old Testament as well. What's the difference between his ministry then and now? Well, there is a little bit of difference. While the Holy Spirit is mentioned as early as the second verse in all of the Bible, in Genesis 1, verse 2, we specifically begin to learn more about Him in Numbers 11. So go ahead and let's turn there and read verse 16. Someone read Numbers eleven sixteen for me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather before me thirty men who will recognize the elders and leaders of Israel. Bring them to the tabernacle to stand there with you. Okay, so the first thing you'll notice is that the Spirit is only given to leaders among God's people here and not all of God's people. Now look down at verse 25 of chapter 11 where it says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took of the Spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the seventy elders. And it happened when the Spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, what we see here is that the Holy Spirit enabled these men to prophesy. That is, to speak the very words of God. That tells us something of what the Holy Spirit does. 
But did you notice what's different in the Old Testament than what we know to be true in the New Testament? He doesn't permanently indwell. Right. Right. He doesn't stay on them. He actually left them. You see, often in the Old Testament, this is what happened. The Spirit would come upon someone and then leave them later. And so he did not necessarily permanently indwell those whom he came upon. But notice this. Moses, in our text, longs for a better day in the future when the Holy Spirit is more pervasive throughout the covenant community. Look at verses 29 and 30 of chapter 11. Then Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. Moses returned to the camp, he and the elders of Israel. What is Moses praying for here? That all would have direct access to the Word of God like he and these other elders do. This also be prophesied by Job chapter 2, which is quoted in Acts chapter 2 to soon take place. We see this all throughout Judges and 1 Samuel. You can read more about it, the Spirit coming upon people and leaving them again. Often there he would come upon someone to aid them in delivering, rescuing, saving his people. And then when we get to Isaiah, we'll see the promise that someone named the servant of the Lord will have the Spirit and power upon him so that he can accomplish a truly great work of salvation for the people of God. See where I'm going with this? All right, Luke 4. Go ahead and turn to Luke 4. Last place I'm going to ask you to turn. Somebody read Luke 4, verses 14 through 19. Luke 4. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Read to what? 19. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And as he was and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set liber- at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Okay, so you see that. Jesus is the servant whose ministry marks a change in the way the Holy Spirit moves among his people. You see that? In the book of Acts, in Paul's letters, we, we learn that now the Holy Spirit is given to who? After Pentecost. Who's the Holy Spirit given to? All the saved people, I like that, right? All the people of God, from the greatest to the least, the oldest to the youngest, He aids and helps us to understand the revelation that is already given. And what is that revelation? That's already been given? The B-I-B-L-E, right? Well, I didn't want to sing it either. So, um, absolutely, okay. Okay. Um, The Spirit also conforms us into the image of Christ, little by little, making us more loving and more holy in the world. We know that's what the Spirit does. So the contrast between all the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and today is that today He's poured out on all who believe. And, unlike in the Old Testament, He never leaves them nor forsakes them. Okay? Any questions about that? Come on, you got You have to ask the one question, right? 
How were people saved in the Old Testament? Nobody's thinking that? Well, the Spirit fell upon them. How, is, how are people saved today? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. What? what? What does it take to be saved? I hope you know this. Two things. Hearts being opened. Hearts being opened or turned, otherwise known as repentance. repentance and faith, right? Repentance and faith is what it takes to be saved. You know how people were saved in the Old Testament? Repentance and faith, right? I, I want to draw your attention to something. Do you know that, that Adam names Eve after the promise was given in chapter 3, verse 15? Did you notice that? He, he says, and her name will be called Eve, the mother of all living things. And you know, I never really thought about that before. Uh, but he's not just saying that technically she's the mother of all living things because she's the only woman and everything must come through her. He's actually proclaiming the promise that was just given by God, right? That through her seed would come the one who would crush the serpent's head. That's why he names her. So listen, this is what you'll see all through the Old Testament because your thought process is that they were saved by works, but it's not. It is faith that produces works, right? So, so that is Adam's faith being shown even in the name of his wife after the curse is brought on them and they're the, the gospel, the Messiah is pronounced. We see that in Noah, right? We think Noah is saved uh, because he obeys God and, and, and building the ark. But no, Noah was actually a righteous man, we see according to the book of Hebrews. And we know that righteousness only comes by faith. Abraham, God said, or that the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was what? That's right. It's never changed, right? Everyone's always been saved by repentance and faith alone, grace alone, Jesus Christ alone. John 14, 6, right? He's the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. That didn't start at John 14, 6, by the way. Always been the case. The only difference there is in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to that promised Messiah. And we now, having the completion of that work done on the cross, are looking back to His work. Clear? Here. All right, let's have, I have that question at some point in time. We'll make sure we got it. All right, in conclusion, let's get, let's get done here. In it all, today, we've seen the distrust and the disobedience of the people. They serve to highlight, that's your fill in the blank, all the more the faithfulness and patience of God. So in Numbers, we've seen how all these things in the Old Testament were meant in God's sovereignty to point the way forward to the Lord Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit after Christ's resurrection and ascension. Yahweh is moving redemptive history forward and continuing with His plan of redemption for the universe and for His covenant people. Here's the application. One, do not murmur against what God has given you. Do not complain, grumble, and murmur against the gracious gifts of God. Consider how the people got into the situation in the first place. What caused their being bitten by fiery serpents? Grumbling. Their sin of murmuring, murmuring and complaining and grumbling. We looked at that extensively in our study of 1 Thessalonians. But instead, trust God's provision for you and for your earthly existence. Don't complain about your income, your job, your car, your living situation. Trust the Lord. Are you to say to the Lord that He's been unkind to you? Or that he's unwise and you know better about what you ought to have? Humble yourself and consider that you as a creature, listen, have no rights.
to anything in God's universe. Guys, we're living in His universe. He's not living in ours. All is His to disperse as He wills. Further, as a sinner, you are doubly indebted to Him. So the next time you think about grumbling about your lot in life, remember who you are. A sinful creature who's been shown incredible grace. That might help to humble you and turn your complaining into praising and thanking. Think your own creatureliness and your own sinfulness and think of God's wisdom and goodness and consider Jesus' words in Matthew 7. Or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? Number two, second application is as we consider the Holy Spirit's role and authority in our lives today as believers, let's consider how to live or walk in the Spirit day by day and not grieve the Spirit. Three blanks there. There, live, walk, grieve. Let's consider how to live, walk in the Spirit day by day and not grieve the Spirit. As we read in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 32, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. As we think about our words being used for building others up, it just immediately goes back to the sin of murmuring, doesn't it? When you complain, you're not building anybody up. To persevere in the faith. You actually discourage their faith. To walk in the Spirit means a lot of things. And, and today we're learning that we have a special gift from God that these people in the wilderness didn't really even have. So we don't have to grumble. We can use our words to aid others in persevering in the faith. Then I've got a challenge for you. I want you to do this, a little bit of homework. Write in your own words a quick summary not asking you to write an essay or a research paper, although I could. Um, not, I don't think you'd do it, but I could ask you to do it. Uh, think just a narrative of redemptive history thus far. So not just numbers, but remember, what's redemptive history? The thread of the gospel, right? God's story of saving sinners throughout history. So a quick thread of redemptive history thus far. What has God done to move the progression thus far and his goal to redeem a people for himself. Okay? Then four, share something new you learned or something old you reminded with someone this week. So really I've got two challenges for you, two bits of homework. Share something new you learned about the book of Numbers. Or if you didn't learn anything new and you're a know-it-all, great, you can teach next week. I'd love for you to teach next week. Uh, or something old you were reminded with. Remember, this is not for us to get puffed up with information. This is all about making disciples, taking God's word in and then flowing it out into the next generation to those in our sphere whom God has set before us so that we might reproduce this gospel in the hearts of a lost and dying world. Any questions, comments, or anything whatsoever? Did you have fun tonight? Yeah. All right. You look like it. Good. <laughs> Any other questions?
you know, as, as long as you want it to be. Com listen, I'll what be was honest. The, what's the magic word they, they, they give you in school? Complete. I'm just, listen, I'm, I'm not going to lie. Um, you write something and I'll be happy, right? Just, just do something. Uh, because if you're like me in school, what you'll do is Wednesday at about 4 o'clock, you'll think, oh, what are we studying tonight? Oh, man, okay. Uh, let me Google. Uh, no, I'm kidding. So write something and I'll be satisfied. But, yeah. I'm not the English teacher. He, he is, so he can give you a word count. My sermon word counts are anywhere from 3,500 to 5,700. So, as long as you feel like it's complete, brother, hey, that's the uh, good answer. Any other questions, thoughts, or comments? Thank you, guys, so much for being here. Justin, would you close us in a word of prayer, my friend? Absolutely. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the Book of Numbers. Lord, as we see um, our own disobedience, our own unfaithfulness highlighted in the, in, the, in the actions of these people, Lord, yet we also see in the midst of that we see your faithfulness. God, thank you that you're faithful, you were faithful to them and you are faithful to us. Not because of us, but because of Jesus. And so, Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, help us now to take these things that we've learned Lord to understand them to, to press in to study more deeply Lord uh, as we've been as these things have been invested in us to do Lord help us not only to understand but to apply them Lord help us to see how you have given us an example um, not only of, of disobedience and a warning that we need to heed but also uh, of your faithfulness that we can trust Lord, oh, Lord, may we not stop there. May we not only understand, may we not only apply, but Lord, may we teach, may we share, may we encourage one another as long as it is called today so that we will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but all the more that, that many would come to know Christ uh, because of what you're doing in and through us. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.